Thanks for joining us today. If you're here, we're going to be talking about risk transfer in New York workers' compensation. Welcome aboard. Thanks for joining us on this Christmas week. As you can tell, this is totally live. This is Greg Lois, and I'm here to answer questions and walk through a very simplified overview of risk transfer and the impact risk transfer has on New York workers' comp cases. So today we're gonna to answer questions like, what is risk transfer? What are you talking about, Greg? What, which of my cases or my claims qualify and we should be thinking about risk transfer in these cases? Uh, how do I preserve my reimbursement rights? Uh, how is risk transfer gonna reduce my exposure or help us? And of course, I'm gonna to have to talk a little bit about the difference between two concepts which are very related, but they're not exactly the same thing, and that's a demand for reimbursement versus subrogation. So we're gonna talk about these topics uh, today. This is totally live, so please ask me questions. It makes it so much more fun. We don't have a ton of people. I'm chalking that up to, it's Christmas week, everybody's on PTO, everybody's taking a break, but you decided to come here today. Let's make this useful for you. Ask me questions. I will answer them at the end. I will typically answer as many as I can get to. I will only say your first name. I will read the questions so that everybody uh, playing along at home or watching this in a recorded video can get the benefit of your question. And then I will answer it for the group. So let's just talk big picture here for a sec. All of our webinar series on New York workers' compensation cases is really trying to answer the big question. Greg, how do I reduce exposure in my workers' compensation claims? And the answers are really, there's not a ton of tools uh, that we have. There's only three or four or five things that we can actually do to reduce exposure. So let's talk about them from a big picture perspective. The first one, of course, is safety programs, prevention, and then a aggressive uh, return people to work policy from the employer. Let's be frank. Uh, sometimes where we are downstream in the litigation process, we can't control those things. Those things are up to the employer. And sometimes we have the type of employment where we can't really prevent things. This is a dangerous employment. Or we can't have a really aggressive light duty return to work program because of the nature of the employment. What's the next thing we can control or we can attempt to control? Well, medical treatment. We can attempt to push the claimant to obtain good medical care, uh, valid medical care, medical care that actually uh, has the beneficial purpose of returning uh, the uh, claimant to work or at least restoring their body functions which have been injured or damaged in the workers' compensation claim. We covered that in our August and September webinars and we covered it in depth, so please go back and re-watch those videos if you want to cover that topic. The next thing we have to try to do is limit it, we try to limit the lost time. So we're trying to get people back to work or get them to a maximum medical improvement. Uh, how do we cover that? Well, we covered that in July of this year, so we can go back and watch that webinar. Uh, the next thing we do is try to reduce exposure on the permanency side. So we're trying to reduce the scheduled loss of use. Uh, we're trying to challenge the amount of loss of wager and capacity. Next thing we can do is a little litigation, maybe on the topic of credibility. Maybe the claimant uh, is less credible than they think they are. Maybe their doctor's opinion is subject to a credibility attack. Uh, sometimes through litigation, we're testing the claimant's allegations and claims, and that will reduce exposure overall. Uh, the last thing, and this is a super powerful weapon, is risk transfer. And that is, hey, we're not at fault for this person's injury. Someone else is. So sure, we owe them workers' compensation benefits, but somebody else has to either reimburse us or we can subrogate and obtain that money back. 
So that's what we're going to talk about today. And today, this is a big topic, and it's an important topic, and it's one of the main ways we can reduce exposure in a New York workers' compensation case, or really any workers' compensation case. So when we're thinking about whether or not risk transfer applies, first question we're asking is always, is there a potential action? And that, ask, that question really asks, is there a real tortfeasor? Was the claimant's injury the fault of someone else, not the claimant? Uh, was there someone who uh, exposed them to a dangerous condition or involved them in an accident? This typically occurs in the motor vehicle context where our friendly employee is driving around, maybe in an employer vehicle, they get into a car accident, and it's not their fault, it's someone else's fault. Uh, the question we want to know in that circumstance is, did the claimant sue somebody? Did they bring a claim against someone? Um, is there an actual tortfeasor? Did someone else's negligence contribute to their injury? And when that uh, is the case, then we're considering our right for either reimbursement or our ability to step into the shoes of the claimant and bring a claim against the actual tortfeasor on their behalf. So let's talk about reimbursement first. I'm first going to talk about reimbursement, and then a few slides from now I'll talk about subrogation, and these are separate concepts. Reimbursement applies when the claimant has brought a claim against someone else. Uh, it is a statutory right. It is embedded in the New York Workers' Compensation Law in Section 29. And so our rights are statutory. You can't waive, abrogate, uh, or fail to assert this right. It is self-executing. And it means the statute by itself says we have this right to reimbursement. You can affirmatively waive it. In other words, you can enter into, for example, a settlement agreement with your adversary or the claimant, and you'll say, look, we're, gonna, we're not going to seek reimbursement in this case if you accept this settlement over here, or there might be other reasons to do that. Uh, however, it is not a right that you can give away by failing to exercise it. And in fact, uh, when the claimant in your workers' compensation case is a plaintiff in a civil action, you automatically have a right to reimbursement. And what do you have a right to reimbursement to? Well, everything that you paid in the workers' comp case. So, how do we preserve or protect that right? I already told you, uh, you should always be thinking about uh, risk transfer as an avenue of reducing exposure right from the time the case occurs or the injury occurs, the accident happens. In my office, when I first get involved in the case, is typically when the case is sent to us by a client to handle. We call that intake here. And so at every case, at the time of intake, we're considering, hey, is there a potential for a third-party recovery? Is there a potential for my client to get reimbursement from some other party? In our office, our practice is every case that we believe has third-party potential, we're putting everybody on notice of our right of reimbursement. We're often educating both the claimant's counsel, all the parties in the case, and just saying, hey, we're here, uh, we have this right, and we're going to exercise it. I like to do this early in the case, uh, literally at the time of intake, because I want everybody to be thinking about this. I don't want this to be something that we first consider when we're ready to settle this wonderful workers' compensation case. I want my attorneys, my staff, to be thinking about uh, reimbursement and risk transfer rights right from the very beginning. Now, I already told you that Section 29, your right to reimbursement, is self-executing. But let's be frank. If you're not advising the other parties of this right and asserting it all the time, and oftentimes we're doing this multiple times during the lifetime of the case, People can lose track of the fact that you have this reimbursement interest, and they can go and do something silly-hearted, like settle their third-party case without taking your interest into account. So we like to keep all the parties on notice. 
It also gives us the opportunity to begin monitoring that civil claim early. And really, I like to do that from the very beginning of the case. It's very simple in New York to monitor a civil action. And that's because most civil actions uh, are being electronically filed and electronically managed. There are two different electronic docketing systems that are in use throughout the state of New York in the civil litigation system. Very, very easy if you're already signed up with those systems uh, to sign yourself up to be given notice of important uh, due dates, deadlines, disclosure end times, uh, court hearings, all the things that you need to keep apprised of what's going on in that civil action. Now, the big question is, how does this help us in terms of exposure? And that question is, how much money do I get back, Greg? I've already been spending money on uh, lost time benefits. I've been spending money issuing benefits for medical care. And of course, Greg, I am going to maybe be on the hook or be responsible or liable for a scheduled loss of use finding or a loss of wage earning capacity finding. So Greg, how do I get my money back and how much do I get back? Well, the answer is if the third party award is greater than what you've paid out in workers' compensation benefits, you're entitled to everything less the cost of litigation. Okay, I just threw a term out at you, cost of litigation. What is that? Cost of litigation in the civil action is the amount of attorney's fees that the claimant or plaintiff uh, paid their attorney, uh, the attorney's fee, plus anything that the claimant or plaintiff expended in order to obtain that recovery in the civil action. And so that would be things like court filing fees, any costs associated with disclosure, that would be like depositions, uh, that would be uh, subpoenaing documents and paying for document record retrieval fees, and that would be paying for things like expert reports or expert witnesses in the civil action. So all of that goes into the cost of litigation and gets subtracted from what we're allowed to recover. In general, most New York civil actions, the plaintiff's attorney is getting a, a one-third fee, Plus, there's going to be some cost of litigation, like, again, filing fees, disclosure costs, et cetera. So you get to recover everything less, generally, about a third, plus whatever those costs are. And that's an important thing. So you're getting a lot of money back. And this can completely offset uh, a lot of our workers' compensation costs and exposure. So this is huge. And that's where the third-party award is greater uh, than what you've expended in the workers' compensation case. What about when the third-party award is less than what we've expended in the workers' comp case. And you can think of circumstances, uh, motor vehicle accidents, where you know we spent $100,000 on medical, but the policy is only a $30,000 policy or a $50,000 policy. And so it's never gonna cover everything that we've already uh, expended. All right, you get everything you've expended, again, less the cost of litigation, and then under a case called Bissell, you get to offset any future exposure that you have, future indemnity that you're liable for, future medical care, uh, by the same percentage. And so it reduces your future litigation costs, and that's useful. What about where the future benefit is very well known, but again, it's not going to be uh, the future workers' comp benefit, I should, I should say, is well known, but it's not going to be covered by the uh, current settlement that they're contemplating in that civil action? Well, the answer is only where the future benefit is easily determinable. And what does that mean? That means it's a perm total case, it's a death case, uh, or it's a scheduled loss of use case where the benefits are obvious. Then our lien is also reduced by those future benefits that we are now avoiding uh, by taking this recovery right now. And that's called a Burns credit, and the credit really goes to the claimant and not to us.
how do we maximize reimbursement? Again, the claimant has gone out, they've got their own attorney, they're pursuing a civil action on their own. How do we make sure we're getting the most back that we should be getting back? Here's some uh, useful takeaways. First, my advice is we should always wait for an offer in the third party action. Oftentimes, during the pendency of the third party civil action, uh, claimants counsel or the plaintiff's attorney in the third party action will keep coming to us to the workers' comp carrier and they'll say, hey, I think I could get a million dollars on the civil side, but I need to know what you guys are willing to reduce uh, your reimbursement demand to. You guys have spent a half million dollars. You know, could you guys reduce that maybe to $50,000 or something like that? Our advice is never really get into these uh, pre-negotiations or prospectively reduce your reimbursement demand until they get a hard offer in the civil action. Uh, I don't like to prospectively or sort of speculatively reduce my client's right to reimbursement. And I never take uh, the plaintiff's attorney's word for how good or how bad their case is. You want to independently analyze that. Um, oftentimes, a plaintiff's attorney will come to you and they'll say, look, we're going to get a million dollars in this civil action. I think I can get that as an offer. But you guys have spent a million dollars on the workers' compensation case. And we're imagining a case in which medical treatment has proceeded for a few years or there's quite traumatic loss. Guys, uh, I'm not going to even pursue this claim anymore on behalf of the uh, plaintiff because it looks like your reimbursement right's going to eat up whatever settlement proceeds that my client's going to get. And so that plaintiff's attorney will come to you and say, I'm going to abandon my civil action. Uh, unless you guys agree to mm, waive your lien or reduce your lien right now. Uh, again, we've never seen that. I've been doing this for 20 years. I've really never seen a plaintiff's attorney abandon their case uh, just because it wasn't going to move any fresh money to the uh, claimant uh, because the attorney won't be getting a fee. So that doesn't make any sense. Also, when they start talking about abandonment, Remember, if they do abandon their civil action, you can step into their shoes and take it over for them. That's called subrogation. We're going to get to that in just a second. The last thing that I hear often is the plaintiff's attorney comes to our lovely risk professional and says, you know, in New York, we always reduce your lien by a third and you only take a third. So it's usually a third for the plaintiff, a third for me, the attorney, and a third for you, the carrier who has a right of reimbursement. Come on, we always do a third, a third, a third. It's a rule of thumb here in New York. Uh, the judge is going to only approve that, so you might as well go along with that. Uh, that's absolutely misleading and not true. There is no one-third, one-third, one-third rule in New York. Uh, if a plaintiff's attorney is threatening you with that, that's an opportunity to give them some education and say, look, that's not really how it works. That's not what the statutes say. That's not how the case law works. Uh, nice try. Uh, good one. Uh, good on you for bringing it up. Your aggressive plaintiff's attorney, but that doesn't really work. So, uh, you know, we want you to negate that. The last thing I'm going to say uh, is often in a reimbursement case where the plaintiff's attorney doesn't seem to be doing a lot of work, doesn't really seem to be going the extra mile to go get as much money as they can in that civil action. It's pretty rare, uh, but it does happen. You know, this is the moment where maybe we need to have a heart-to-heart -heart conversation with them and say, hey, because remember, we're aligned with the plaintiff at this moment. We want them to go get as much action they can, uh, I mean, as much, uh, sorry, award as they can against that third-party uh, tortfeasor, who is, by the way, not us, uh, because we're aligned with them because we're going to be able to get all that money back. So sometimes they'll come to us and say, ah, my case stinks. It's not worth anything. Uh, would you guys accept some small amount of reimbursement so I can go uh, settle this case for peanuts? Sometimes we need to push them a little bit and sometimes give them the benefit of our advice. We've gone as far as even to suggest expert witnesses 
uh, to plaintiff's attorneys in the third party civil action who don't really seem to want to do a lot of work. Uh, sometimes we'll help them in a mediation. We'll go to the mediation and we'll explain how our, our demand for reimbursement works. We'll explain how the benefits in the workers' compensation cases were calculated. Uh, so attending mediations, and particularly in construction cases, that's been a really useful way of making sure that we maximized our opportunity for reimbursement. All right, I've already hinted at this, but the second big avenue risk transfer occurs in New York is through subrogation. And yes, under the New York law, you are allowed to subrogate. What does subrogate mean? It means the plaintiff's not bringing the civil action against the actual tortfeasor themselves. And so we can step into the shoes of the plaintiff and bring that action on our own behalf. We're, we're speaking for the plaintiff. We're representing the plaintiff's interests. Uh, the part where this departs from truly representing the plaintiff is that I actually don't care if I get the most amount of money for the plaintiff. I actually don't care if I get them millions and millions of dollars for pain and suffering. All I care about is that my client's interest is, is protected because remember, I'm subrogating. All I'm looking for is to get enough money in the third party action to reimburse us or to cover us for what we've paid in the workers' comp action or what we contemplate paying in the workers' comp action. We have the same rights and the same limitations as the plaintiff and the most important one of that is that we have to file this subrogated action within the three-year statute of limitations. There's some other limitations that I'll get to in a second. What can we subrogate? What kind of cases are ripe for subrogation? And the answer is any case uh, in which there is a potential for a recovery against a third party. So any claim, any tortfeasor, we can subrogate that. Uh, for example, in a workers' compensation case, a claimant is injured in the workplace accident, then goes and gets medical care, and the physician who performs the surgery sews them up and leaves the sponges and the forceps inside them. Uh, now the uh, claimant is far worse off than they would have been from the original workers' compensation loss because they've been now the victim of medical malpractice. That is an opportunity for us to subrogate against the medical provider who has now harmed them, made, put, made them worse off. So you can have a case within a case within a case. Those things are all possible. We can also seek contribution from the employer in a grave injury situation, and that is defined by statute. Uh, this is a rare exception to the general anti-subrogation provisions in most state laws, but New York does allow for contribution from an employer whereas they're, 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 the employer's negligence has caused what is defined by statute as a grave injury. And grave injury is paraplegia, amputation, total blindness, total loss of hearing, total loss of hands, total loss of multiple fingers, you know, very, very significant cases, and of course death, uh, those all count as grave injuries. Relatively rare, but this is one of those rare or one of those areas where New York actually allows for more subrogation than, for example, other states. Uh, in New Jersey, you can never see contribution from the employer, even for the employer's own gross negligence. Uh, and it doesn't matter how injured or disabled or uh, what kind of disability the claimant is left with. So that's an important distinction between other state laws. How do we subrogate? Well, uh, it's rather simple. Uh, but the most important requirement for subrogation is that we're putting everybody on notice. Before we can file our civil actions standing in the shoes of the claimant, we must issue written notice to the claimant. Uh, if they have an attorney, we like to include them as well. And it, we have to give them at least 30 days of notice. And we have to send a letter that essentially says, hello, uh, you haven't brought your claim. A year has elapsed from the date of loss or six months has elapsed from the date of first payment of compensation. And so now I'm gonna stand into your shoes and I'm gonna file this claim on your behalf. By law, 
the letter we send has to provide warning language that says, unless you do something, I'm going to step into your shoes and I'm going to take this case over and I'm going to file the claim on your behalf. That warning language is required by statute, but I actually love that warning language because often when we send this letter that says, um, dear wonderful claimant, we think you have a third party right of action. You don't seem to be pursuing it. We're going to do it on your behalf unless you do something. That often acts as the trigger for them to go off and get their own attorney and pursue the claim on their own dime, which is great for us. It gets us back into that original situation where all we're doing is going along for the ride and seeking reimbursement. Uh, what are the limitations to subrogation? Well, there are a couple. First of all, we can't subrogate against first-party benefits. And again, those are benefits that are owned or paid for uh, or accrue only to the plaintiff themselves. A great example of this is in a workers' compensation case, by law under Section 15, we have to provide all necessary and curative medical care to the claimant. We can't then turn around and sue the claimant's private health insurance and say, hey, we paid for all this care, but you're the private health insurance. By the way, that's a first party benefit. Now you have to reimburse us. Uh, that's disallowed by law. Another example is where the claimant has their own uninsured or underinsured motorist coverage. We can't subrogate against that. Again, that is coverage that is purchased uh, by the claimant to protect themselves, and we don't have a right, a contractual right of subrogation against it. Under insurance law 5105, we can uh, subrogate against motor vehicle cases or claims brought by the claimant. Those are typically subject to a carve out of $50,000. However, if it involves a commercial vehicle, we can do what's called loss transfer arbitration request and we can get that money back. So in that circumstance, we actually have a, a greater right of recovery than does the claimant themselves. Again, I wanna remind everyone that it has to be one year from the date of loss or six months from the claimant's uh, payment of first workers' compensation benefit, and we have to wait that additional 30 days. So there are some time constraints here that we have to keep in mind, and I consider those limitations to subrogation. What are problems with subrogation in this state? Well, <clears throat> from practical experience, I can tell you there's a couple. The first is we need the claimant to cooperate with us. Remember, in the workers' compensation court, we're adverse to them. We're saying, you know what, you're ready for the Olympics. You're fine. You're in great shape. But, comma, in the civil action, I'm going to represent your interest and say you're totally disabled and you need a millions and millions of dollars, really, because all I care about is recovering my own interest. It doesn't really lend itself to great cooperation from the claimant. Uh, cooperation is also hindered by the fact that the claimant might have a very personal reason for not bringing the civil action themselves. Uh, maybe they know the person who is the tortfeasor. Maybe it's a family member. Uh, maybe they have other issues or reasons why they don't want to be brought into civil actions. So for those reasons, uh, obtaining the cooperation of the claimant is a barrier to seeking subrogation in New York. Yeah, ethical issues also arise for us as your defense counsel. It's very difficult to do both the subrogation of an action and represent the employer in the workers' compensation part. In my office, we actually have a separate attorney. His name is Chris Major, and he handles the subrogation matters here, and generally try not to have any overlap or overlay between the two cases if we can. It's also difficult when the claimant is unrepresented in the workers' compensation claim. The uh, workers' compensation claims in New York do not require that the claimant have an attorney. Sometimes they don't, probably about five or 6% of the time. Uh, these are very difficult people to deal with, and now we're standing adverse to them in one courthouse, and then we're attempting to represent them as their attorney in another courthouse. These uh, can be fraught with both ethical uh, issues and also communication issues that we try to avoid. So those are some other issues. 
All right, what are some handy takeaways from today? And if you really learn nothing else, what I think is most important to take away is first of all, there is no such thing as one third, one third, one third. This is a famous or uh, uh, often trotted out uh, by petitioner, uh, or sorry, by plaintiff's counsel saying, oh, we always do a third, a third, a third. It's a rule of thumb. Of it. and, they'll, and they'll get you the lovely risk professional on the phone and screaming, yelling, I've been doing this for 80 years and we've never taken anything but a third. That's how it always works. You've got to cram down uh, your demand. It's not true. They're just trying to bluster and bully you from uh, obtaining your full recovery. You do not have to accept that one third, one third, one third. We also should be considering, and, and this is something you can ask defense counsel to do, we really can give you a good idea of whether that third party, that civil action is viable or not. And we're always gonna to wanna to be thinking about when we're making our reimbursement demand, how viable is that civil action? Is it a strong case? What is the likelihood of recovery and how big is that recovery gonna be? We're gonna sort of process that and make sure we're considering it uh, as we analyze that third party case and thinking about it from a purely reimbursement standpoint. The big takeaway, I think, is to be mindful of risk transfer from the very beginning of a workers' compensation accident. Start analyzing it early. Start considering your opportunities for risk transfer reimbursement or your, the necessity of subrogating the case in order to reduce your overall exposure, which is our goal in all of our cases. There's a lot of avenues this can take. For example, uh, sometimes we have a very viable subrogation action or a great claim for reimbursement. But what we really want to do is maybe get a zero pay in the workers' comp case. And we'll do that by waiving our right to subrogation or waiving our right to reimbursement in favor of, for example, a zero dollar moving, no money moving, section 32 lump sum dismissal in the workers' comp case. That's a possibility. And we like to think about things from that global perspective. What's the best thing for the client? What does the risk professional want us to do? What's going to get this workers' compensation exposure down as small as possible? All right. So those are some handy takeaways. I'm gonna turn over now to questions. Type your question in now because I'm gonna open up the question panel and see if we have any. As you know, I teach the same class at noon Eastern and three o'clock Eastern. So this is the second session. We had some interesting questions in the 12 o'clock uh, session. So let me see if we have any good ones here from the three o'clock session. All right, right now I'm looking, I don't see any questions. Look, I know it's Christmas week. I know we're thinking about um, getting our shopping finished. When are those Amazon packages going to get delivered? Uh, so maybe uh, people have some uh, other concerns right now, more than questions about risk transfer in New York workers' comp cases. I'm still looking here. I'm not seeing any questions pop up. So I'm glad uh, hopefully we've answered or addressed some of the thoughts that you had or concerns you had. Thanks for joining me. I want to thank everyone who comes to all of these webinars. It's great to see you guys. Uh, great to talk to you. Next year, we have a whole, uh, a whole year planned of exciting webinars and some new topics, so please join us for that. I'm going to go over here to the question panel one more time, open it up. I still don't see any, so I think we're in good shape. Thanks for joining us here today, everybody, and I'll see you next month.